All right, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And if you are using, the Bible, or using uh, your bulletin, uh, the words to, that we're going to be looking at from Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48 are provided for you right there in your bulletin. We are making our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. As he, the king of kings, teaches those who would come after him what it means to follow him, what it means to be a citizen in his kingdom. So Matthew 5, 43 to 48. If you will, allow me to pray to piggyback on what Tim just prayed, that God would bless our time together as we open up his word. God, we do pray that you would bring glory to your name through our looking at, through our diving in, through our, through our immersing ourselves in your word. Give our hearts the ability to see that which perhaps we were once blinded to. Give our souls the ability to trust you, where perhaps that would have once not been easy, and in fact it is still quite difficult. Lord, would you hold Christ high? Would you help us to run to him? Would you help us to cling closely to him? And Lord, would you help us to learn from our resurrected Savior, from our crucified King, and learn what citizenship in his kingdom looks like, and help us to see our King all the more clearly. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So in case you didn't get enough creepiness uh, or scariness with Halloween yesterday, I want to begin by introducing you or telling you about somebody known as the Poe Toaster. Poe Toaster. Toaster as in making a toast, pouring a drink, making a toast, and Poe as in Edgar Allan Poe. Noted writer, poet, master of the macabre. His writings significantly focused on joyful topics like death and mourning. And on October 7th, 1849, Poe died at the age of 40. And after his death, he was buried in the Westminster Burying Ground, right in the heart of downtown Baltimore. That was in fall of 1849. Now fast forward approximately 90 to 100 years, and beginning sometime in the 1930s or 1940s, on every January 19th, which was Edgar Allan Poe's birthday, between the hours of midnight and 6 a.m., a dark, shadowy figure, a man dressed in all black with a white scarf wrapped around his neck and face, and then a wide-brimmed black hat that was pulled really low so you couldn't identify him, he would come to Poe's grave. And he would visit it. He'd open a bottle of Poe's favorite drink, and he would pour a glass. He'd make a toast to Poe. And then he'd leave the drink and leave three roses at Poe's grave before disappearing into the night. Creepy, right? As word of the Poe toaster spread, every, every year people would show up at the cemetery. They'd be bundled up in the cold, you know, midnight between, between midnight and 6 a.m. in middle of January in Baltimore. It's not the warmest time. They'd be bundled up. They would, they would shiver and they would wait. And eventually he would arrive. He'd make the toast and he'd depart. And no one would dare try to stop him or identify him. They're simply fascinated by the whole spectacle of it. This happened every January 19th for decades and decades and decades until the man apparently likely died in the late 90s and he passed along this tradition to, his fr to a friend or to his son before 
the last Poe toast was made in 2009, exactly 200 years after Edgar Allan Poe's birth. Now, what in the world does a strange man dressed like Zorro and making a toast at Edgar Allan Poe's grave in the middle of the night once a year, what does that have to do with our text today? Specifically, what does that have to do with loving our enemies? Well, Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, 43 to 48 is, I believe, honestly, far stranger and far more uncommon behavior and a far more strange and uncommon sense of, of, of attitude and of conduct than someone simply showing up in the middle of the night to have a drink at a grave and leave flowers. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 43 to 48. And hear the sheer, in one sense, the sheer absurdity of such claims. They might be so familiar to you that you don't hear the oddness of it, but as we make our way through it over the moments ahead, I trust that you will. Jesus says in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here's what I want to hold out before you from this passage this morning. I want to hold out before you that if we are children of God as we claim to be, then we will respond to our enemies and, and those who seek our harm with a love that is entirely uncommon in our world, yet is perfectly in common with our God. Let me repeat that. If we are children of God as we claim to be, we will respond to our enemies and to those who would seek our harm with a love that is entirely uncommon in our world, but is entirely common with our God. We're going to see this through three sections of this passage. We're going to see our responsibility to love our enemies, our reason to love our enemies, and then the radical nature of this love for our enemies. Our responsibility, the reason for it, the radical nature of it. First, our responsibility to love our enemies in verses 43 and 44. So Jesus says, you've heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is the sixth time, if you were to look back previous uh, parts of chapter 5, there's there's six examples. This is the last one where Jesus addresses a problem of his day, but also brings it forward to our day. And, and, and specifically addresses how, how uh, his audience was not quite rightly understanding their Bibles. And so what Jesus is, is basically addressing is that this problem of how we, how we equate our spirituality or our religiosity or our service to God with our outward actions. And yet Jesus is saying, I'm not fooled by that. And you, even though you may be fooled by it, and you may think yourself religious because you do these things outwardly, I am more concerned with your heart. And so Jesus moves throughout this passage, throughout Matthew 5, he moves from the external to the internal, 
in order that he might get to the actual identity and the reality of those who had professed to come after him. And the example that he gives today is specifically related to, in one sense, how we can misunderstand and misapply Scripture to justify our previously established biases, our previously established wrong attitudes towards those who we think are not our neighbor. And so what Jesus is holding up, as he says, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and you shall hate your enemy. What he's quoting there is in one sense from the Old Testament law in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18, but the law in Leviticus had been contorted and had been abused over the course of centuries and centuries where it originally said in Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It had been contorted under the, 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 the flow and the sway and the influence of tradition and the influence of, 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 of man thinking himself superior over God's word to, to the point where it said, okay, love your neighbor, but if, if we're going to love our neighbor, then we have to hate our enemy. And so what Jesus is addressing here is this this danger where we can use what we think God's word tells us to do to massage in our previously established bias. Whereas what God's word, what Jesus is showing us is that God's word is a means of doing surgery to, to root out the hate that is metastasizing within us. And to surgically pull that out that we may grow in love towards those around us. And so the danger here is an abuse of God's word in one sense, right? Where Jesus said, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now Jesus is saying this to an original Jewish audience of his day that was under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And these conditions where where his Jewish audience, not only under the thumb of the Roman Empire, but you could trace back century, 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 where they had been mistreated and abused and even even, uh, enslaved and all sorts of things that were just evil treatment they endured. And you can look at the history of the Jewish people and see Jesus addressing his Jewish audience and see how how they could get the attitude of, yeah, loving neighbor, fine. Hating enemies, yeah, okay, we got to do that because they hated us first. Jesus says, if you know me, if you follow after me, if you are citizens of my kingdom, you will love those who you consider to be your enemies, who you consider to not be your neighbors. Let's consider how we face that in our day and age today. The election upcoming. In some manner, your faith will shape how you vote or how you don't vote. Regardless of what side of the aisle you believe is best to vote. Before you say, oh, well, Jesus' words here, I've got that figured out. Let me ask you, are you able to love those on the other side of the aisle? Or does your application of God's word actually make it harder for you to love them? Consider if you're going to vote Democrat. You may think the other side of the aisle is greedy is harmful to the poor or to minorities, but does your understanding of your faith harden you in your distaste for the person who votes that way, or does it actually produce, as it ought to, greater love for them? If you're going to vote Republican, you may do this because you feel that the other side is godless and doesn't doesn't care for the unborn, but does your understanding of the faith harden you in your opposition to that person or to that other side of the aisle? 
Jesus is holding up in one sense as a love for our enemies, but in another sense, he's saying, I don't want you to abuse my word to foster hate for those whom you disagree with. See, Jesus says our Bibles are not like magic eight balls. Do you remember those magic eight balls that you would like shake and you'd ask a question, you'd shake it and get an answer, and if you didn't like the answer, you'd shake it again until you got the answer you wanted? Sometimes we can open up our Bibles and think, okay, what should my attitude be towards this situation? And then we read and say, oh, well, I don't like that one. Let's find another passage that addresses that. Oh, well, okay, that's a little better. That'll be how I view this. And it all, all it does is it confirms our previously established instincts. Jesus holds up before us that our Bibles don't exist to, uh, for, us to allow, for us to make God into our own image. God's Word exists in order that through it God may make us into the people, into the men and into the women that He has created us to be. And so back to the matter at hand with Jesus and our neighbors and enemies. Verse 43, you've heard it say you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Here's how pressing things were for Jesus' audience of His day. You know, you hear that word neighbor. They really wrestled over what it meant to love neighbors. And they would ask, well, okay, who is my neighbor? Maybe you're familiar with a quite familiar Bible story where that exact question was asked. In Luke 10, Jesus was telling of the need to love, and love our neighbor when a man asked him, and who is my neighbor? And in response to this question, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, thus teaching that our neighbor is anyone that we are in position to help, regardless of what we think about them ethnically, relationally, economically, politically. So when Jesus says to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, he holds up this example before us of caring for those whom we would have every reason in the eyes of the world to push away. Every reason in the eyes of the world to think that I share nothing in common with that person or that one. And this is how the otherworldliness of the kingdom of Christ stands in stark contrast to the kingdoms of this world. Whether you see people with their signs in their yards about how they're going to vote, whether you see people, you know, desiring peace, desiring uh, unity, desiring all sorts of things which are good, but if you hear it in the modern political vernacular of our day, Republicans think peace is going to come through electing Republicans. Democrats think peace is going to come through electing Democrats. And Jesus says, no, peace is going to be found through you loving those who are different than you. And the nature of this is so profound because what it does is it speaks a reality about a kingdom and a place that holds first priority in the hearts of those who would come after Christ in a manner in which our citizenship on earth, though it is something to be taken with importance, is something that pales in significance to our citizenship in heaven. And I want to let you in on a little secret. Regardless of what direction this election goes, regardless of what direction future elections go, when, once this one's over, it'll probably be a couple hours old, and you'll already start hearing talk about 2022, and then 2024, and then 2026. The cycle that never stops. Regardless of what direction any election goes, history would seem to indicate that our Christian worldview is going to grow more and more out of the mainstream of culture. But this will only give us more and more opportunities to pray for those who might think that we are bigoted or who would like to remove 
Christianity from the marketplace of ideas in our day and age. And Jesus, this revolutionary man who taught us to love our enemies, this God in the flesh, he called his shot on this 2,000 years before we experienced it. This was prominent in the Beatitudes, where Jesus set an expectation for what it meant to, be fo- to follow him and to be identified with him as one where persecution and being on the margins of society are actually quite normal for those who would profess to follow King Jesus. Jesus doesn't just give us a responsibility to love our enemies. He gives us a warning and an exhortation to love our enemies because, in fact, if we have enemies and if we have those who persecute us, that implies that life following following him is, in fact, difficult for the follower of Christ in a world that is opposed to him. Now, as he gives us this responsibility... Let us hear the reason why he explains how this ought to be the case amongst the people of God. Our reason to love our enemies is God's mercy to the world. Look at the text again. Verse four, I'll, I'll read again in verse 43 and then through 45. He says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now you might read verse 45, the first part of it, and he says, okay, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Then you look at verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now you might read that, and you might think, hold up. My, my, my gospel radar is going off here. What we believe as Christians, when I say gospel, gospel means good news. What we believe is that Jesus Christ died for our sins. There is no amount of goodness that we can do to make ourselves right, to make ourselves acceptable before God. Therefore, we can't earn our way to Him. We can't can't make our way to Him through our good deeds. And so how is Jesus saying, love those who are different than you, love those who are your enemies, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven? Is Jesus refuting that which we believe? This is something of such great significance. As I referenced earlier, yesterday, October 31st, was not just Halloween. This is the 504th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, where a Catholic monk named Martin Luther nailed 95 theses, or statements, to the wall at the church in Wittenberg, Germany, because he had become convinced that there were serious issues with how the Roman Catholic Church of his day was teaching regarding souls and God and how we are made right and justified before God. So where he was rebuking, repudiating, based on what he had read and studied in God's word, this idea that one makes themselves right through financial offerings and through good deeds, is Jesus different than Luther here? No. If we look closely at Jesus' language in Matthew 5, and also pull the curtain back further on the whole Sermon on the Mount, then on the whole of the Gospels and, and on the whole of as revealed in Scripture. I think what Jesus is saying is that not you do these things in order to become children of God, but you love your enemies because you are children of God. Now think of it like this. There are a number of you in our church family 
Who have told me that my son looks a lot like me? (laughs) I didn't plan on that. He does not look like me in order to become my son. He looks like me because he is my son. Just like there are nervous twitches and little things that I do that resemble things that my mom did before I was even born. I do this thing where I get nervous and I shake my hands and I kind of scrunch up my nose. My mom does that. I didn't do that to become her son. I did that because I am her son and somehow genetically, hey, it made its way to me. And so what Jesus is saying here, if you are children of God, you will be like God your Father and you will love your enemies like He loves those who are opposed to Him. By being a people of love for our enemies, we are recognizing that we were once enemies of God, even persecutors of His. And yet by praying for those who persecute us, we are echoing the words of Christ as we sang with that song, Your Will Be Done, where we're echoing His words as He was going to the cross and He was praying for us and praying for those who were killing Him. So as I seek to show the love of God to those whom I would disagree with or have differences with, I am testifying of God the Father who has first loved me. But this is easier said than done, right? We've talked about politics, but who else are your enemies? Who else are your enemies? Is it perhaps an ex-wife or ex-husband? That you still are connected with them, maybe because of the children or in some way, shape, or form, just life does not allow you to be divorced entirely and separated entirely and yet they make your blood boil is it a child or is it your parent who makes life and growth in grace in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ difficult who are those people whom you would wish to cast off whether they be people on the other side of the political aisle or on the other side of the kitchen table And does the God that you profess, does his love reveal itself to them through you? Jesus explains this a little further in the second part of verse 45. He says, so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. And then he says in the second part of verse 45, for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God imparts his grace upon all who are His, and upon all who are not His. He causes the crops of those who love Him to receive rain, and the crops of those who do not love Him, they receive their rain and sunshine as well. And we pray we don't receive rain for another 15 minutes or so. God does not just care for those whom He agrees with. He showers the world with His mercy. So let me give you a little homework today. Today and over the next few weeks, take the bulletin that you receive that we sing songs from and all of that. Take that home with you and prayerfully read over and think over the words to the songs that we are singing. And as you reflect upon them and and how they reveal the love of God and the power of God that he has worked in us and the grace of God that he's poured out upon us. And as you as you do all of these, ask yourself, do these things that I sing of having been a recipient of myself, do they flow out of me? 
towards those whom it is hard for me to love. You might say, well, Stephen, it is hard for me to love my enemies. Jesus says that's right. That's why they're called enemies. That's why he throws in the line and pray for those who persecute you. Because Jesus is saying there are some to, to his original audience who will even seek your harm. Meet them in mercy and in love. Loving others sounds all well and good. But the distinction in loving those that we shouldn't love, loving those who give us no reason to love them back in the eyes of the world, that's odder than showing up in the middle of the night dressed up for Halloween at Edgar Allan Poe's grave. So what makes this so odd? Well, let's see, thirdly, the radical nature of our love for our enemies. This is divided up in two ways. This radical nature of our love is that we are contrasted from the world and we are children of God. This radical nature is contrasted from the world and children of God. See, the problem in our day and age is that we only love those whom we deem to be worthy of loving. But Jesus addresses that in verse 46. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So Jesus uses two examples here, tax collectors and Gentiles. And these were people, these are two groups of people who received especially harsh vitriol from his Jewish audience. Tax collectors worked for the Roman Empire. The Roman government used a system to collect taxes that both alienated and discriminated against Jewish residents. The Romans would identify an amount of taxes that they wanted to be collected from an area or region, and then they would hire out tax collectors who would be responsible for going and getting that amount, and anything obtained above that amount was able to be kept by the tax collector. So this fostered a, an environment that agitated the Jewish people who would, have to, who would have unseemly high taxes levied against them, and it agitated those who would even see some of their own fellow brethren become tax collectors and be given to the corruption of the Roman Empire. These Gentile Romans. And so one way that this would manifest itself is you might be out fishing one day, and you bring your haul in from a, a long day of fishing, and you've got to pay taxes and bringing it in to sell, and one day you pay taxes on, ten, you, you have to pay 10% of what you're going to receive for selling it, but the next day the Roman government's coffers might be a little low, or that tax collector might be a little greedy, and they might say, hey, today it's 60%. And it would change day by day. And these little peasants who had no political power, no political sway at all, would be left to the whims of the tax collectors. And Jesus says, if you love those who are exactly like you, you're no different than the tax collectors. They love one another. And if you love the Gentiles, the non-Jews, no or, or if you don't love those who are different than you, you're no different than the Gentiles or the non-Jews. Jesus presents a love that is contrasted from the world. Democrats are going to love Democrats. Republicans are going to love Republicans. How well do you love those who are going to vote differently than you? Do you listen to their views? Do you interact with them on social media with an attitude of charity and not with an attitude of condescension? One thing that is greatly missing from our discourse in this day and age, both broadly but also in, even in interactions and in conversations with one another, is a principle of charity. If you're not familiar with that, it's a, it's a principle where basically as, as we seek to 
communicate what other people are saying. Seek to talk about other people whom we disagree with. Charity means that we present their arguments honestly, straightforwardly, uprightly. We present their arguments in a manner in which we aren't trying to reveal how, how idiotic they are or how, how, how devoid from reality they are. But we seek to have honest exchanges and represent people in the way in which we would want to be represented. Do those whom you disagree with, whether it be politically or those in the office or those uh, uh, wherever you find yourself, in the classroom, do those whom you disagree with, would they hear you state their position and then they'd hear you state it to the point where they'd say, yes, that is what I believe. We ought to be people of honesty as we talk about those whom we disagree with. We ought to be people of love. Martin Luther King Jr. said, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. And our Lord Jesus says, love your enemies. Love your enemies and those who and pray for those who would persecute you. And not only are we contrasted from the world as we do this, but we are children of God. We are children of God. Jesus says, lastly, verse 48, you must be therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now this is actually a conclusion to the whole section of uh, chapter 5. And so what he's summing up as he talks about murder, as he talks about adultery, as he talks about divorce, as he talks about uh, uh, retribution, as he talks about uh, taking oaths, as he talks about now um, loving those who are different than us, he's developing a whole picture that is hopefully going to leave his audience with a sense of humbling and saying, I can't meet this standard. And Jesus says at that point, you are exactly right. And he says the way you meet that standard is to take your eyes off of yourself when you realize that you can't meet it and to look to someone else who has met it. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. By receiving the grace of God that has poured out upon you through Jesus Christ, you are made perfect not through your actions but through His. So my question is, one sense, are you perfect? How well do you love your enemies? You say, oh, I'm not perfect. <laughs> I've got a long way to go. I do too. But the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he atoned for our sins. He atoned for our hate for our enemies in his cross as he endured the cross for those who were enemies of his, namely us. So if you will look in faith upon Jesus Christ and repent of your sins and trust his death, trust in his death for your sins, you may come to him and live. And you may come to, come to him and you will not be perfect, but you will be made perfect by his grace that is made real to you. If we are children of God as we claim to be, we will respond to our enemies and those who seek our harm with a love that is entirely uncommon to our world. And the greatest way that it is uncommon, and the greatest way that it is even more weird than showing up at Edgar Allan Poe's grave in the middle of the night and making a toast, is because it is built on a man who is no longer in a grave. And it is built on a man who changes everything because he first loved us who were his enemies and he loved us to the point of going to the cross and he loved us to the point where he gave his life as a ransom for us brothers and sisters no matter what tuesday holds let's look in hope upon christ no matter what the next month the next year no, no matter what the future holds let's look and trust in christ would you pray with me
Christ, you are our joy. You are our rock. You are our strength. And we give you praise. You who loved us, who came for us, even when in our sins we were rebels against you. You have made us your own. You have atoned for our sins. Our hope rests in you and rests in you alone. If there's anyone here who does not know you, Lord, I pray that you would bring them to faith in yourself. Would you help them to lay down arms, to stop fighting against that which you're drawing them to yourself and come in faith and look upon Christ and live. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.